Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three Southern Bells, joining you to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott Hunter, Rachel Breyers, and Liz Bashirs. And today I am so excited. We are on site at Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology right here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's an incredible research organization where really fascinating work is being done in genetics, genomics, and beyond. And we are joined by Dr. Sarah Cooper, who is a Hudson Alpha faculty investigator with a research focus in cancer genomics. Dr. Cooper, welcome to Bell Curve. Thanks. Great to be here. Before I share a little bit about Dr. Cooper and we dive into the interview, I just want to acknowledge all of our listeners out there who may be fighting cancer right now or who may have a loved one battling cancer or who has lost someone to it. Our hearts are just with you. I can't imagine there are really any of us who don't know someone who has been affected by cancer. In fact, my amazing aunt, who I'm very, very close to, is actually this week having her arm amputated because of an aggressive colon cancer that she's been fighting very courageously for years, but it's spread throughout her body, and she's going to lose her arm because of it. Oh, my goodness. What is her name? Do you mind me? Sure. It's Melinda Blackman. Well, for, the, for Melinda and for all the Melindas out there, we just send you our prayers and know that our thoughts and our prayers are going out to you today and forever. Well, we wanted to bring Dr. Cooper on because there are exciting developments and discoveries about cancer going on in research institutes like Hudson Alpha, particularly on the genetics frontier. So a word of introduction, Dr. Cooper trained in genomics and metabolomics at Stanford University, where she received her PhD in genetics, and also at the University of Washington, where she did postdoctoral research. Her work is focused on using genomic and metabolomic technologies to understand human disease and improve patient care. Her current and recent projects cover a diverse range of human disease, including pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, brain and neuropsychiatric disease, with a particular emphasis on precision medicine. Boy, that's just a lot of hard words to understand and even say. (laughs) But she also leads the Hudson Alpha's Information is Power initiative, which is a genetic cancer risk screening test that is pretty cool that we're going to go into and talk about a little bit today. But we're very interested in women in the sciences. What interested you in this field and how did you get to where you are? I think my initial interest in genetics came really when I was in high school and I was taking my first biology class in ninth grade, and we learned a little bit about genetics. And if you maybe remember Punnett squares, it's the basic idea that you can look at two parents. I remember learning about it in flowers, so red flowers and white flowers. If you cross a red flower and a white flower, you get some red flowers, some white flowers, and some pink flowers. And so I remember learning about that and thinking, oh, wow, that's really cool. And I sort of naturally thought, well you know, the next logical step is, well, that means if you know about the genetics of the parents, you can kind of predict something about the kids. And maybe if you know the genetics of the kids, you can predict something about the future. And so I think that was sort of my initial moment of, oh, wow, that seems like something I might want to do. And being the sort of nerdy high school kid that I was, I sort of fixated on genetics. You and, don't say. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I think all three, we, yeah. we probably all sort of feel like we were nerdy oh. when we were younger. <laughs> I feel like you got to embrace it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, I really wanted to study genetics in college. I was fortunate that I grew up in Wisconsin and the genetics program at the University of Wisconsin actually has its roots in agricultural genetics, so animal breeding and agriculture. But obviously the DNA is the same in all living organisms, so you can learn a lot about DNA there. So I actually continued my study of genetics there. I worked in a lab that was looking at using flies, Drosophila fruit flies, as a model for retinal degeneration, so eye diseases, and really enjoyed that. It was a great experience and continued on in graduate school. So I think now my interest in cancer genomics kind of came from a place of curiosity. And given the other work that I had done as a scientist, it was a natural fit because we mentioned at the very beginning a little bit about metabolomics, which is the idea that you can look at how cells metabolize energy. And cancer cells in particular have an unusual metabolism. They change their metabolism. It's different than normal cells. And of course, the genetics aspect that I had trained in as well uh, is an important part of understanding cancer. And so that's how I got interested in that. That's sort of the nerdy answer of why I like cancer genomics. But as we all get older, unfortunately, it's pretty common that we encounter people in our in our everyday lives and people that we love that go through struggles with cancer. And while that wasn't initially why I got interested in the field, it's certainly an important part about what motivates me. I feel like we need to briefly define genomics. What in the world is that? So genomics is a broad term that essentially covers the study of our genome. And our genome is all the DNA that we have in our bodies. There's 3 billion base pairs. These are little chemicals that sort of we consider to be a little bit of a cookbook, a bunch of recipes that our cells use to essentially make all the different parts of our body. And the DNA in our cells controls lots of different things, everything from your eye color to how tall you are. And of course, there's environmental factors that affect those things too. But genomics is essentially the study of all those, all that DNA that are, is in our cells and what function it has in controlling who we are and what our risk for disease is. And we're essentially using a variety of different technologies to study that. One of the most important technologies that we're using in genomics today is a process called sequencing, which allows us to look at all of those bases in our genomes. A, T, C, and G are the four abbreviations for the chemicals that we have. And those four simple letters make a big alphabet that we can use those sequencers to look at and look at changes between people that help us understand why those changes exist and ultimately to help predict how different diseases might affect us in the future. So question about about this. In my other life, I'm, a, I'm an attorney here at an engineering services company. One of the areas that we are in is big data and the computing requirements for big data are enormous. And you know, I, as I was reading your CV and, you know, all the opportunities in genomics for improving our lives, I thought, well, why isn't it being done in more places? Why, why is it discreetly done in research institutions and in places where it's, you know, you have to have a, a, a lot of computing power? And is that the reason? It's because you have to have such a, you know, these massive computers? Is it, that was just a piece of this I wanted to understand a little bit better. So I think the field is growing so quickly and we're learning so much so quickly that I think a big part of the reason that a lot of the work is done at large research institutes is because that's where the work is being done to sort of make these connections between changes in our DNA and how you might treat a disease or what a person's risk for the disease is. To really make those discoveries, those high-power computing systems are necessary. 
once we make those discoveries, you don't necessarily need to have that on site to implement or use that information. And I think what's happening now is as we make those discoveries, we're finding ways to, instead of having to sequence an entire genome, although we do like to do that for a lot of, in a lot of cases, you can pull out the little pieces of information that we know are important for a particular disease or risk and just look at those pieces of information in a way that makes it easier to develop, say, a clinical test. So mapping, a, mapping an entire genome, how long does that take for a supercomputer? So, ooh, that's a good question. So just to back up a second, I think it'd be good to put in context sort of where we're coming from. So in 2001, the human genome was sequenced and published for the first time. It took almost 15 years and about $3 billion to generate that sequence. Today, we can sequence a genome for a few thousand dollars in a little over 24 hours. Now, once you have that data, how long does it take to essentially put it all in order? When we do the sequencing, even though our genome is 3 billion bases long, all the sequencing we do is short little reads of, say, 100, and then we, those all get put together like puzzle pieces. And so that's where some of the computational infrastructure is important, putting all those pieces together. How long does that take exactly? Ooh, I don't know. It, it's a matter of days. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going answer. from massive amounts of big data, and you're looking at the, the pieces of information, the data that you want to look at. Correct. Okay. I often hear the word frontier is used. Is, this, is that the sense that scientists have these days, is that this is a frontier that is not very understood? I mean, if, it, if y'all are sort of diving in in 2001, what do folks like us who don't really know what all is involved, what do you see in the future coming with this data? I think even back in 2001 when the human genome was originally published, one of the goals for generating that data was to provide a resource that would help us do exactly what we're doing now, which is to understand what does one human genome look like? And then once you have one human genome, what does the next person and the next person and the next person? And a lot of research that's being done in this world is focused on generating whole genome sequences or more genetic data that we can use to ultimately link changes between individuals to diseases, for example, or how a patient responds to a particular drug. I think that's sort of the direction that we're going right now. And it's changing fast, but I think what we envision is someday every person could have their genome sequence. That would be part of maybe their medical record or maybe something that they keep with them that their physician or anybody else that may be able to use that information could use to help direct how they receive medical care. So can we tease that out a little bit? Because that's super interesting. When I have attended the lunches, particularly the ones that are held for breast cancer awareness, and the and I just compliment you and compliment Hudson Alpha on the, the being the cornerstone of some of that research and really doing some incredible work with breast cancer in particular. But one of the one of the things that's often mentioned is personalized healthcare and the ability to know how certain medicines and drugs will affect you and that certain medicines and drugs that are prescribed routinely for certain illnesses will not have an effect on you or will not have the desired effect, will not be therapeutic in the way that you want them to be if the genes and the medicine don't match. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's sort of a field of study called pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics, which basically is the idea that there are certain changes in our genes that 
do affect how our body metabolizes different drugs. And we have a program here that is part of a company called Kylos Genetics, who we also work with for Information is Power. And that's one of their one of the products that they sell. And it's based on research that's been done here and in other places that essentially identifies changes in our DNA that affect how we metabolize different drugs. And it can help direct, for example, if you need to take a statin or if you have seizures and you need a seizure medication, what drug might be either best for you or perhaps in some cases, maybe there's a particular drug you may want to avoid and others would be okay. Back in a moment with Dr. Cooper. Are you a business owner or part of a marketing team struggling to create content that your customers will notice? Are you tired of spending precious time writing blog posts or email newsletters that your target audience doesn't read? Maybe it's time to consider creating a podcast. There has been explosive growth of people tuning into podcasts. According to Edison Research, nearly one out of every three people listen to at least one podcast a month. And it's not just young people. There's been a sharp increase in podcast listeners over the age of 55. More than half of all Americans say they have listened to a podcast. People like podcasts, and it's fun to make a podcast. But I didn't say it was easy to make a podcast. That is where I can help you. Lots of podcasts fade away because they're time-consuming and technical to produce, and you probably don't have time to make one, which is why my firm is offering a limited number of turnkey branded podcasts for businesses like yours. I can handle everything from the logo to the theme music to the recording, editing, mixing, distribution, you name it. So all you have to do is really the fun part. Show up from the comfort of your office and share your expertise with the world. Please reach out to me for more info. You can find me on Facebook at Rachel Blackman Briars or at briarscommunications.com. That's Briars, B-R-Y-A-R-S, communications.com. We are super eager to learn about some of the recent cancer research. I mean, it, it is on all of our minds. We, Like you said, we all know somebody, and, and we look at ourselves and wonder what will our future hold. So can you sort of walk us through some of the most interesting or important findings that are coming out of the research that, that folks can sort of practicalize or understand? Sure. So I think a big thing that has come out of cancer research in general over the last I don't know, decade, let's say, is our ability to better predict cancer risk. Some of that started even more than a decade ago with the identification of BRCA1 and BRCA2 as important genes for predicting our risk for breast and ovarian cancer. There are several other genes that are important for our risk for breast cancer too, as well as a number of genes that are important for risk for other cancers like colon cancer and prostate cancer, for example. And so when I say risk for cancer, what I really mean is there are changes in our DNA that affect how likely it is you are to get cancer during your lifetime. And so some of the work that we've done and that others have done, that's really what motivated the project that we call Information is Power, which is the initiative that I've been running. And so Information is Power is a an initiative that we run here at the Institute. It's in its fifth year right now. And the goal of the project is to use DNA sequencing that to identify changes in our DNA in a particular set of genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2 that tell us about our risk for breast and ovarian cancer in that case, but it's a 32-gene panel of genes that will tell us about our risk for cancer. And the goal of the initiative is really to help people get information about how likely they are to get cancer. And in some cases, that may affect how they 
uh, receive their screening. So for example, if you if you don't know any other information about your breast cancer risk, typically women would get a mammogram starting at age 40 and then more or less every year after that or every other year, depending on how you wanna do it. But if you find out that you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, it's recommended that you start those mammograms significantly earlier, usually around the age of 30, maybe even earlier, depending on what your family history is. And there's also surgical interventions and other types of screening, like ultrasound, for example, that can be used in addition to mammogram for people that are at very high risk. And so the goal of the Information is Power program is to identify those individuals that carry those changes in their DNA that dramatically affects their risk for cancer. And we know that that's a relatively small proportion of the population that carry those changes in their DNA. But for those individuals that do carry those changes, it dramatically affects how they should screen. And men and women can carry the gene. That's exactly right. So uh, men actually can get breast cancer. Not everybody knows that. It's rare, but it does happen. And it most men who have breast cancer, it is because they carry a change in, in one of these genes. And so the program that we offer actually gives free testing to men and women at, in the age of 28 to 30. They have to be in the five-county area in North Alabama, which is Madison, Morgan, Limestone, Marshall, and Jackson counties. It's all, it's also $129, which is a $100 uh, discount for any other individuals living that, in that five-county area that don't fall into the free age bracket. And the test is widely available for everybody as well. So I took the test. I paid for the test because I was over the age, but it was very good information. And I'm, I'm blessed in that I, I, I didn't carry the genetic risk, but that doesn't mean that I, can't, I won't get cancer, right? Right. So individuals that don't have a positive test, so they get a negative result from the test, they still have the same population risk as you would expect, um, which for breast cancer means that one in eight number, which is still a high, a high proportion of individuals. So way it's, too high. Yes. <laughs> way too high. Yeah. And so we really want to stress that as part of our results. Uh, we have a genetic counseling team that works as part of our information is power initiative. And when you participate in the test, you have access to the information and materials that they have developed as well as an opportunity. If you need to call and talk to them, they can answer questions about that as well. That is so fascinating. The psychological effects of finding out that you might be at risk. So how do people process when they find out that they have that gene? So I think it really depends on the person. And one of the things that we do as part of signing up for the program is there's a series of short videos that our genetic counseling and education teams have put together that talks a little bit about before you actually take the test, maybe think about how you'll understand that information and, and whether it'll affect you in a way that you know, maybe you don't want to do it. So we think information is power is the name of the test for a reason. We do think that the, that information is powerful, but we also understand that for some individuals, the anxiety or the stress of that information can actually be, can be worse than the information itself. And so while we, we, we believe that there is a potential positive impact of having that information. We want to make sure that people that participate are informed as to what that means. I have talked to people that I, I can't think of an example of somebody who took the test and then wish they hadn't. But I do know people that have not taken the t test because they're too worried about it. it. It is, you do get anxious. But I would say for, for our curvies out there, it's good information, you know, and not, while it is, the videos are very good and they do, they do give you the information that you need and it does reduce your anxiety. But you need information to be able to take actions to protect yourself. And if you don't have that information, you know, you could, there could be a result that you don't want. So I, if it were, if it were up to me and I were giving advice and somebody were asking me advice as somebody who's taken the test, I would strongly encourage you to take the test. 
What role does environmental factors play on changing our DNA, changing our risk factors? So the environment does play an important role in understanding our risk for a variety of different diseases, including cancer. So the typical example that everybody probably thinks of is smoking. It's a huge risk factor for lung cancer. Of course, you can get lung cancer and not be a smoker, but if you smoke, then your chances of getting lung cancer are much higher. Actually, your chances of getting lots of cancer is much higher. We know that the environment is an important part. Our exposures to chemicals actually physically does change DNA, and that's one of the reasons that smoking, for example, increases our risk for cancer. And that's one of the reasons why the genetics is a little bit complicated. So when I talk about BRCA1 and BRCA2, for example, there are mutations or changes in, in, D, in, those, DNA, in those genes that affect our risk for cancer, but they aren't deterministic. So if you don't, if you have sort of what we would call normal or you know non-changed BRCA1, your risk of cancer is one in eight for breast cancer. If you have a change in BRCA1 that we know increases your risk, your lifetime risk goes up to about 70%. So it's really high, but it's not 100%. And we think that environmental factors and probably other genetic factors as well contribute to your overall risk. And so I think I think the best thing that we can say as scientists is we know what some of those environmental triggers are that you want to avoid. Smoking is obviously one. Um, you want to have a healthy diet and exercise. That Those are both big factors that contribute to your risk for cancer. And then other environmental exposures to a variety of different chemicals, which that's a whole other thing. But I think we don't know everything, but we do know that the environment plays an important role. Can you kind of talk about some of the other cancers that, what's coming for, for us as far as awareness? So I think one of the big things that is happening right now that is catching on and starting to be used more regularly is it's something called polygenic risk score, which sounds really technical, but really what that means is that I gave an example of BRCA1 changes where that one gene makes a big difference in our risk, but polygenic, so if you think about what, what, where does that come from, that means many genes. So there are most diseases that we think of, your risk for that disease is affected by many genes. And so one of the things that we've been developing at Hudson Alpha is a way to use what are called polygenic risk scores, which takes uh, information from a lot of different genes and combines it all together to give you a estimate of your risk for a variety of different diseases. That's not just cancer, that's cardiovascular disease and diabetes and uh, other diseases as well. From your view, if you could tell people anything, you know, what, what are some things that you just wish people knew in this space? I think the biggest thing is that the field of genetics and genomics is moving really fast, but we have learned so much in the last decade, really, as we've sequenced genomes. Um, we're starting to get better and better at diagnosing rare disease, for example. So we can take a whole genome, those 3 billion bases from mom, 3 billion bases from dad, and find essentially that needle in a haystack, you know, those tiny changes that sometimes make really dramatic impacts on how people are able to live their lives. And for more complex diseases like Alzheimer's and diabetes, we know that there's lots of genes that are important. And every day we're finding new genes that are important for understanding those diseases. And I think one of the cool things about this field is that there's two sides. There's the first half, which is discovering the genetic links. So what are the genes that are important to controlling our risk or how likely we are to get some of these diseases? The other side of that, though, is that when we know what those genes are, it enables us to better understand how the diseases happen in the first place, and it offers us new ideas about how you could either prevent the disease or treat the disease when it happens. And so that's where some of my research comes in actually, is we are interested in 
understanding how changes in tumor genomes affect how the tumors themselves respond to existing chemotherapies and how we might improve how patients respond to those drugs by either changing the way the therapy is administered or developing new drugs that could potentially either work better or change how patients metabolize the drugs that we already have. And so I think that's the exciting thing for me is that how quickly we're learning this information. And I really also appreciate, especially at Hudson Alpha, how we're working towards taking those discoveries and turning them into clinical tests that can be used or sometimes, you know, they're spinning off into companies that are developing products that can more quickly get to consumers and patients. And so I think that's part, that's the exciting part for me is really taking those discoveries and bringing them to people. And here at Hudson Alpha, uh, it is both a, a place to study genetics and also a place where businesses grow. That's right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's yes. just an interesting... It's mm-hmm. right here in our backyard, you know, here in Huntsville, Alabama. It's a, it's a state asset, the national asset, but the cool thing is it's in Huntsville, Alabama. And I just... Can you talk a little bit about those two things, the, the, not only the test, not only the, the science, but also the businesses that are growing here? Right. So Hudson Alpha is a very unique place. So we have our our four mission areas and two of those are research, which I talked a little bit about with the idea that we can study cancer and how how things might um, how we might do things differently in the future. But another mission area is, is entrepreneurship. And Hudson Alpha is home to over 40 companies that are, in many cases, uh, developing new products based on some of the research that's been done. Um, There's a lot of collaborations between the companies and the research labs. And then many of the companies also just work with the members of the research team. We have a lot of different er expertise, as as do the companies. So we have one example of a project that's going on in my lab where one of the genes that we identify that's important for pancreatic cancer patients that is associated with poor survival. Uh, We've partnered with a company here in the building that is interested in designing a drug that could potentially target that gene. And so they're using their expertise, they're uh, basing some of their work, their efforts on the work that we've done. So that's a really good example of those kinds of collaborations. And incidentally, Information is Power is another example of that because a lot of work has been done, not just by us, but by the community at large to identify those genes that are important for our cancer risk. And Kylos Genetics is one of the companies that's here in the building. They actually do the sequencing for the Information is Power test. They designed the test and implement it. So we partner with them uh, for the Information is Power test. They're actually providing that sequencing data. And then our genetic counselors and the Institute and our team do the rest of the program to inform people and, and share the results. So one other question that may be on the minds of our curvies out there I mean, we could go days and days on this topic, but um, do you want to speak to the ethics of genetics and have you, you know, I know that's got to be a constant concern. You know, what are the top line thoughts that you have that our, that our listeners would be interested in today? My first thought is you should do a podcast with Tom May because he would tell you all about it. And that's his area of expertise. <laughs> we'll, we'll put him yeah. on the list. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I think that's certainly something that is in the forefront of our minds, particularly for me as we think about information as power. Uh, we talked a little bit about this. A, a big part of launching the program was thinking about making sure that people that participate in the program 
first off, understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. We also offer the pe- offer people the opportunity to participate in research through that program, and that also has an ethical component. So there's an informed consent, meaning we want to make sure people know what we're doing with their data, what, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, and what we hope, hope to accomplish. Um, and that they consent to that. And they consent to that. And, yes. they, and the research aspect, you don't have to do it. It's, it's optional if you want to. And then, yeah, another ethical concern when we talked about this a little bit was when we first started the program, and this continues to be something we think about a lot, is making sure that we provide the right educational materials for patients with both positive and negative results so that they really understand what their result means and how they can, how they can or should respond to that information. Part of that is thinking about what resources are going to be necessary for patients that have a positive result. So as we think about expanding our program or going out into communities where even in Huntsville, where not everybody has access to the care that we would love for them to have, that's another part of our ethical responsibility if we're going to offer this opportunity for people making sure that they have access to resources that they'll need if they have a positive result. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I think I would just encourage people to find out more about the test. If you go to the Hudson Alpha website, you can easily find out about it. And we would love to have participation from uh, your listeners. Well, Dr. Kipper, thank you so much for your work and for sharing your expertise. We've really learned a lot today. We will link to information about the genetic testing kit in our show notes. And you can find Hudson Alpha at their website, which is H-U-D-S-O-N-A-L-P-H-A.org. And I know our curvies will be especially interested in this, Hudson Alpha just launched their own podcast about genetics and DNA, and that is called Tiny Expeditions. The first season is all about animals, so you will want to check that out. In fact, I think it'd be kind of fun for us to play you all's teaser at the end of our show today, so hang hang out and, and we'll, we'll, we'll stick that on the end of this episode. Connect with at Hudson Alpha on social media and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Bell Curve Pod. And please check us out and support us on Patreon.com slash bell curve pod. We love bringing you quality episodes like this one and would be very grateful if you considered supporting the show with a monthly contribution. The lowest tier is only $3 a month and we hope all of our listeners will consider chipping in at at least that level. And we have some fun extras at the higher levels. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on Bell Curve where we love to observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Hi there, I'm David Kumbrock from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. I'm here to tell you about Tiny Expeditions, a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance. Together, we'll take little journeys into the tiny science of genomics. This first season, we're going to explore what scientists call animal morphology, why animals look the way they do. We'll answer questions like, why do dogs come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, while house cats are all basically built the same? Are zebras white with black stripes? or black with white stripes? And why do humans all look so different? We've got six episodes this season, releasing bi-weekly starting February 3rd. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and get yourself ready for some tiny expeditions. Hudson Alpha. 